home of Liberty One, and Raylene Lightheart, armed with her ray of truth, travels far across the galactic sea of statism in search of the Austro-Libertarian himself, C.J. Engel. Alone on a desolate world of socialism and communism, the Austro-Libertarian C.J. Engel stands alone and does what he can to fend off evil. C.J. Engel advances the Austro-Libertarian tradition of economic and political thought, especially as been articulated by the likes of the original Libertarian cosmonauts, Ludwig van Mises, Bernd Rothbard, and Hans Hermann Hoppe. The Austro-Libertarian separates his beliefs from the Libertarianism, technically defined. The Austro-Libertarian pulls no punches when he tends to favor culturally traditional Western traditions, in contrast with the left Libertarianism. So behold, the Austro-Libertarian on episode 34 of Blast Off with Johnny Rocket. Transmitting directly from the launch pad. Bringing blue collar to your cell tower. The rock and roll libertarian himself. It's time to blast off with Johnny Rocket. Hey, this is Blast Off with Johnny Rocket, and I'm here with my real truth, Miss Rayleigh Lightheart. Hey. Hi, Johnny. How are you doing? Well, I'm obviously, uh, I have not had a good week. I did write a post about this online, but uh, my mom passed away last Saturday night. And uh, I was at home, and I got, a, I got a phone call. Well, I was outside smoking, talking politics or something. And I get a phone call at 9.30, and I'm like, that's weird. I mean, not that people don't call me at 9.30, but I looked at the phone, and it's my stepdad, who never calls me at 9.30. And I'm like, this is not good. Something's not good. So I got the call saying, hey, Johnny, your uh, mom's no longer with us. And she was in a tragic car accident. So I've been dealing with that for the last week. So I know. I'm really sorry that happened. So, you know, I had, we had a show last weekend, but I had to cancel it because of that. Uh, we, we haven't lost any momentum or anything where our shows are coming down, but we usually have a couple in the bank and we've used up everything in the bank. So now we're on loan. So yeah. <laughs> that's time. Well, we've been trying to make this show happen with our guests for yes. a while now. It's exciting. Yes, mm-hmm. actually about maybe since we just started the show. And uh, so, yeah, I've been dealing with that with my mom and uh, so yeah, it's been tough. It's been tough. I know. And I know how close you guys were and you're very, you had a very special relationship with your mom and she I was did. an amazing woman. Mm-hmm. She was great. She was amazing. And beautiful. Oh yeah. My mom was great. And so, yeah, it's been tough and it, I think it just makes it even harder that it was such a tragic and fatal car accident. And I think that's where it makes it even harder. And I, I think the biggest thing that was going through my head, Raylene, was I hope she didn't, you know, feel any pain. You know what I mean? I just yeah. hoped it's like, make it quick when she went, make it quick. And yes. based on the, how the car looked, from what little, the glance that I made of happened to see, I accidentally kind of looked up the accident and saw our car. Yeah. And I'm like, nah, it was quick. It was really quick. So, yeah. Thank God. A little tough this week here. So, uh, all right, Raylene, you ready for the show? You know, I really am. And I think that uh, this is going to pick up real quickly. We have a great guest and um, we're going to have a lot of fun bashing socialism. Are you ready? Here we go. So the history of socialism has its origins in the 1789 French Revolution and the changes which it wrought. Although its precedence in earlier movement and ideas, the Communist Manifesto was written by Karl Marx and Frederick Engels in 1848, just before the revolutions of 1848 swept Europe. 
expressing that they termed scientific socialism. In the last third of the 19th century, social democratic parties arose in Europe, drawing mainly from Marxism. The Australian Labour Party was the world's first elected socialist party when it formed the government in the colony of Queensland for a week in 1899. A majority of libertarians and conservatives complain about socialism, and this week we're here to tell you why it sucks. Our guest C.J. Engel is the creator and editor of the Austro-Libertarian. He lives in Northern California, runs several businesses, spends his time with his family, and reads as much economics and political theory as possible. He's especially interested in wealth accumulation and preservation of our era of rogue central banking. He is an avid reader of the Austro-Libertarian literature and a dedicated proponent of private property in sound money. Okay, Raylene, prepare for liftoff. Copy that, Johnny. Covers, tie-downs, and grounding cables. Removed as required. Communications connected. Check. Preamps in the green. Check. Cold beer. Double check. Thrusters are hot. Raylene, are you ready to rock? All systems go, Johnny. Let's blast off with CJ Angle! Good to be here. Thank you for having me on. Right on, man. Right on. And it's been, we've had a couple, uh, I don't know what you'd call them. Like, we're going to do the show and whoops, something happens. And hey, we're going to do the show and hey, something happens. So we actually made it happen this time. So thanks a lot for coming out here and doing the show. Yeah, I'm glad to do this. This is a this is a trending topic. This is something that's going to be talked about for years to come. It's it's on the headlines and there's a, never been a better time for libertarians to Pay attention to what's going on. Be able to to talk about it and just reject it wholeheartedly. It's mm-hmm. a. It, there's been polls out. Young people are being attracted to socialism at, you know, across campuses and in the media and all sorts of outlets. And it's just an, a ludicrous and dangerous doctrine. And I think that we need to do everything we can to undermine it in any way we can. Hell yeah. Okay, so according to the Gallup, 51% of the people between the ages of 18 and 29 have a positive view of socialism, while just 45% of the people have a positive view of capitalism. And this is a recent Fox News poll. Fox found the growing support for the statement, why are people becoming more interested in the idea that moving away from capitalism is a good idea? Well, I think that right now in this culture, it's painfully obvious that most people simply cannot differentiate between what a want is and a need is. I think that's furthered through indoctrination camps called government schools as well as media. Mm-hmm. Do you guys believe that this is how the progressives have gotten a foothold or is it something else? What do you think, CJ? Yeah, I think that's a big element of it. If Marxists have anything, they've taken a lot of time to to talk about strategy. You know, how do they get their ideas into the general society? And one of the things that some of the, you know, more Western socialists have really emphasized in the past is what they call the long walk through the institutions. What they're going to do is they're going to get their ideas into the core institutions of Western society. And one of the core institutions, of course, is the education system. So if they can start you know, when the kids are, you know, five and six and at the youngest age, by the time they're a voting age or political, you know, activity age, they're going right. to be endorsing their ideas. So they have this long term view of getting socialists into the mass movement. And they've done a very good job at it. And I think we're yeah. seeing the fruits of their efforts. But I think there's a lot of elements going on to why people are are interested in socialism. On one hand, it's always easy to get people riled up about free crap, right? It's always easy. It's like very the, easy. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. 
If you're a politician and you're out there saying, look, uh, I want your vote. Here's what you get out of it. Hey, you know, that sounds good to most people. You know, they, don't, they don't think about the costs or, or any of the other ramifications. So promising th- free stuff and especially appealing to people's sense of envy. Look ah. at these billionaires. Look at these multimillionaires. They have all this stuff. That is such an easy game to play. It is. And that was the thing I was going to say. It's easy to say, well, look at this guy with all the money he has. You know, like, look at him and he's rich and he's making so much money. But I always ask people this. I said, that may be true. But when's the last time a poor person gave you a job? And and they go, well, never. And I go, well, exactly. How many people does that man actually provide life and living for? Tons. He is providing not only a value to society because people are obviously buying his product, right? Well, he's also employing all these people. And so they can go out and buy more products and supply stuff for their family and live the life that they want to do. So this guy is actually creating wealth versus the communist or the socialist who goes, well, he's making too much and I don't like it because it's unfair because, you know, if I had that money, I would be great and it would be wonderful. Why does he have all that money? And that's what pisses me off. Exactly. There's this little parable. Uh, it's, it's in a meme form. It's in all types of different layouts. But basically, you know, you can see a socialist walking past a big, you know, yacht yard where all the yachts are. And they just say to their friend, there's no way anybody should ever live like this. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas mm-hmm. the capitalist walks past that and he says, man, I hope that someday everybody can live like this. Everybody. Right. Yep. Yeah, that's the difference. I We're think. talking socialism and communism and, and all of the variations of our uh, I coined a term called envy economics and I just hashtag it every time. It is amazing because it when you are your philosophy is born from envy and what about me? There's a problem because at that point you are literally taking and not partaking, if you know what I'm saying. Sure. Yeah. And it's easy to appeal to that, you know, as a politician, as, as someone in the media. I mean, if you want clicks right on your articles, if you want votes, if you want, you know, big follower base. Hey, let's just appeal to people's sense of envy and let's get them agitating against the millionaire class. And uh, right. hey, I think you've you've built yourself a nice little following just by agitating against uh, people that they don't like or people that they wish uh, they could live more like without actually having to put in, you know, the effort or capital investment. You know, the people think that, hey, if, the, if we could just drain the wealth from the capitalists and redistribute it to us, we'd all be happier. That's much easier than actually going out and doing the hard work of creating wealth. Right. Oh, absolutely. So here's the, here's kind of a, it's not a stupid question because I think it's kind of important that we get our terminology kind of locked in because we were just talking about it when we interviewed Luke Enzer. He was discussing that when you say I'm a liberal, you know, in today's meaning, it's completely different than what it meant 50, 60 years ago or 100 years ago. So what does it mean to be a socialist and how is it different than being a communist? And now, from my understanding, one's economic and one's political. And maybe you can expand on that. Yeah, that's actually a really good question because I think the terms are shifting. And, and part of the reason for that is socialism is a, is a very good marketing word, right? If you're mm-hmm. going to appeal to people's envy, I mean, that's a really good word to use because it, it's, it's kind of got that grungy against the establishment feel to it. So people like to use it. I think it's yeah. an excellent word for marketing. But I don't think that so many of the people calling themselves socialists today are actually socialists in the traditional Marxist sense, right? So when you mentioned at the beginning that there was a shift, you know, socialism came about right in the 18th century and then Marx 
came about with this uh, attempt to create scientific socialism. Right. I think that scientific socialism was kind of when the word began its mainstream definition. And, and the best definition for that kind of socialism in the Marxist sense literally is public ownership of the means of production. Okay, the means of production mm-hmm. are all the, the different factors that come together that capitalists, um, well, in a capitalist economy, they would, but of course, in a socialist economy, there would be no capitalists, but all the factors, all the things that come together to make consumer goods, okay? Sure. So Marxists and socialists don't actually believe that, you know, for instance, we have our um, computer, I don't even know if there would be computers in a socialist economy. No. But like, let's say, nobody would want to build one. There's no incentive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, you know, whatever they'd have. So they're hammers, hammers and nails or whatever, right? So right. you have all these consumer goods. The Marxist isn't saying that these consumer goods are shared by all. They're saying that they differentiate between what's called personal property and what you might call, uh, you know, the mean, the production property, right? So the factors of production. So they sure. think that the means of production are actually shared by everybody and personal goods, what we would call consumption goods are actually owned, uh, can be owned by individuals. So they do make that distinction there, but the best definition of socialism is the public ownership of the means of production. All right, like factories, hammers, yeah, just construction equipment, factory equipment. Yeah. The, well, the minerals, yeah, the factory equipment, all, all just the elements, you know, the anything in itself. nature, things like that. The factory itself, right, right, all of the things. So, like, if you're if you're going to build like a um, a car, right, you have to first you have to get the elements out of the earth, and you have to refine them and manufacture them, and all those steps up until you have the car. Well, right. all of those steps in between, you're producing what's called product uh, production goods, right? All those production goods are owned publicly in the socialist framework okay right so the goods of the higher order are owned by everyone by the by the community it's public domain basically yeah Mm -hmm. and it's kind of a vague thing that's part of the problem with it was what does that mean publicly owned like who gets to decide and then so uh, you know the, the 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 most frequent answer is well the government acts on behalf of the public right of course okay so now you have problems Right. Right. So, and that creates its own problems and that's worth getting into. But the point is that under traditional definition of socialism, that's what it means. So today's socialists, they don't necessarily, I mean, some of them do, but a lot of them don't even talk about that anymore. So there's been a shift in the meaning of socialism. And one of my favorite economists on this issue, his name is George Reisman. And he's got this, I mean, if, if anyone's anti-Marxist, I mean, you should see some of the language that this guy <laughs> uses against Marxism. I mean, he's, he's intense about it, but he says, look, most of the self-described socialists today aren't actually socialists. They're just, um, he calls them left interventionists. And we, mm-hmm. we could actually touch on that. What's the difference between interventionism and socialism, because I think we're seeing the fruits of interventionism in okay. the, 21st, uh, the 20th century. I think a lot of the economic frustrations that people are feeling are the result of government involvement in the economy. But that government in- involvement in the economy is a little bit different than a public ownership of the means of production type. Okay. Of thing. So there's a lot of, I mean, I'm getting nuanced here, but I think that answers. You know, no, I agree. Question. It's good to know. But what about yeah. communism? Now, how does that differ? So traditionally, actually, communism was the same thing as socialism. They were used interchangeably. The only difference that you saw was there was a split. So socialism took um, its most, uh, you know, its most advanced steps during the Soviet Union era. There was a split in the so when you know during the Bolshevik Revolution there was a split between what what we could call the Orthodox Marxists and the Reformists. 
The Orthodox Marxists, they said, we have to do complete revolution. We have to completely topple the system as it exists because everything in it is tainted by capitalism and we have to completely remove it violently if possible. You know, okay. if necessary. So that would be the orthodox position. The refor- the reformists said, okay, but you know, uh, that's not really going to work because everyone's going to die and everyone's going to suffer. Let's let's think of a better way to do it. Let's get into the government and let's change things from the inside. That was the reformist. Mm-hmm. So when you saw the, that split, that's when things began to di- be differentiated between communism and socialism. So as the socialist movement spread westward. People began to associate revolutionary or orthodox Marxism with communism and this reformism as socialism. So very interesting. The yeah, the split is not original to Marxism. It kind of was developed over time as the various parties took upon themselves to create different strategies for their you know utopia. So in theory, then, like us as anarcho capitalists, we would be the orthodox. <laughs> libertarians <laughs> well, yeah that's and that's what i was that's yeah and that's interesting because um when we talk about the strategy for liberty if you if you read like someone like um hans hermann hoppe and we'll maybe we'll touch on him later but if you if you read some of his stuff he says because he's very well educated in marxism because he used to be a marxist he said look their ideas are are loony and and ludicrous right never we should we should never adopt a socialist ends but they've done a lot of good work on strategy and he talks about the fact that they have their extremists you know the radical marxists and we should probably consider how radical we libertarians should be so in that Mm -hmm. sense he he yeah that parallel is actually he he talks about that in his uh he's got this essay called uh, what must be done? And actually, that t- that essay is actually titled after Vladimir Lenin's um, essay of the same title, "What Must Be Done." So he says, "Look, the Marxists have their strategy for liberty. It's called What Must Be Done. Here's our version of it." And Forcible so, yeah, removal. He, yeah, I mean, he. Well, I mean, he doesn't get into that there, but yeah, I mean, he talks about how radical we must be and exactly what we have to do. So yeah, I would say, you know, there's a good there's a good uh, similarity there. What you mentioned. I think it's important for the listeners to understand that Marx promoted socialism through state power as level one. And he believed that it would lead to communism with the absence of state. And that's promoted by anarcho-communists or ANCOMs for a lot of libertarians that are listening. They know this. Um, Marxist socialism in every instance has created Leviathan governments that consume like fire. Um, it never worked out the way he thought. And we never went to a lessening of the state. It's only grown. Uh, what exactly do present day socialists and communists believe will be different this time? I think there's a big renewed interest in this ideal of democracy, right? The ideal that because we have a democratic system, something that wasn't really on the minds or wasn't even developed in the culture of the Soviet Union and, and other places where it's failed, there's this idea that if if everything is driven by you know the quote unquote people, you know what, and, and that has its own problems. Yes. But if the people can decide what the use of the resources are, then that's going to solve any authoritarian tendencies that socialism in the past has had. Democratic socialism, Bernie style ideas. Is that what we're Yeah, and especially with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and people like that. But the thing is, the thing that they can't get through their heads is the fact that when you talk about the people, there's tens of millions of people, all with varying interests and desires and, and things like that. And there's only one way to handle that type of variation in the people, and that's the market. You know, and so the idea that 
we can all come together and vote our way into, you know, agreement is just absolutely ludicrous. I mean, we can't even agree about, you know, presidents or, or various issues that are already in the legislature. How are we supposed to organize the means of production via the, the, the ballot box? It's completely loony. Here's the thing, though. Why do socialists seem to get it wrong when it comes to exploitation? And how is capitalism so much more effective? Because they just think that everyone who has a lot of money is exploiting people. Or last time I checked, last time I went to McDonald's. I was never forced to buy a Happy Meal. Oh, they actually say that work is slavery. They think working at all is is like you are a slave. They believe that. Yeah. So that's that's. I mean, that was part of the core of Marx's doctrine. You know, his, his so-called exploitation theory, and it, it hasn't really generated a lot of interest in the 20th century because it was completely demolished. Um, and and not. I don't even see people like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez reference it. Part of the part of the reason for that is that she's she's just kind of a you know she's really dumb she just doesn't understand any of (laughs) yeah she she basically yeah she's she doesn't understand or 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 even know what that means probably but there are marxists that talk about this today but what they mean by exploitation basically is there's a difference between what the wage earner is getting paid for his work and the price that the the things that they're producing is sold on the market there's a difference there and so like, so someone gets paid $10 an hour to produce X amount of widgets, but the widgets sell for Y amount. Well, there's a difference there. And the laborer doesn't capture that difference. The, the capitalist does. And so the, the Marxist theorist says that the capitalist is actually exploiting the labor of the worker in order to capture this difference that he didn't even do anything to earn. That's the exploitation theory. But if it was a state run government or the state state run, the state would be running our economy. It would be uh, worse exploitation because then it's slavery. So I don't really under at least there's choice in capitalism. Exactly. Yeah. You can quit your job at any time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's part of our argument against it. But the, the bigger thing is the fact that under that under that model because of the division of labor, there's actually a lot of benefits to the worker that wouldn't exist under, under, uh, you know, under a socialist economy. For instance, I mean, the very fact that the capitalist takes on the burden of putting together all these productive resources, all these factories and stuff, and spends millions of dollars preparing all this in anticipation for his hope that the consumer might buy his product. Right. That's a lot of burden that he puts on himself that the worker doesn't even have to worry about. So if, if, if the capitalist invests millions of dollars and he pays the, uh, the worker, you know, $15, $10 an hour, whatever to produce this thing, that worker gets paid regardless of whether the consumer is even interested in the product, right? So he makes mm-hmm. the product and the capitalist goes and tries to sell the product. Well, the worker already got paid for his work. And let's say the, the capitalist takes a loss on it. He bears the, the financial burden of taking a loss on that. but And the risk. Well, yeah, and the worker got the worker got a financial benefit without even having to worry about that. If 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 nobody's interested in the guy's product, the worker still got paid. I mean, that's a huge deal because if if it wasn't for the capitalist, the worker himself would have to bear the burden, and in in no worker can afford to to do any of that, right? So, f- sure. for instance. The capitalist is producing all these things because he hopes that eventually one day in the future, a consumer will buy the product and the capitalist will get paid back. That's kind of the model that capitalists operate on. Right. But Mm -hmm. the worker doesn't have any savings and he has to eat today. He still has to go home and eat 
you know? So he doesn't have the savings to be able to, to wait until the consumer buys his product. He doesn't have the time to wait. So the capitalist fronts him the money basically. Right. And so that's a huge deal. Isn't that, that kind of like the time preference deal, right? You can look at it as a time preference where you could be in it for the long run and you could end up making more versus the immediate result of being paid now. Exactly. And that's the trade-off. And the workers say, look, I would rather get paid now because I'd rather eat and pay my electric bill than wait until the consumer happens to, you know, he chooses whether he wants to buy it. He might not even buy it. Then the worker's completely out, right? Sure. So the capitalist fronts him the money because the worker needs to be paid now. He doesn't have time to wait. So there's a lot of benefits to the capitalists. And and this this is the argument that was made by the Austrian economist, um, Eugene um, Bambavrik, his name's kind of hard to pronounce, Bambavrik, but he, he had this, this was his big response to the exploitation theory. And this was his contribution. And once he made that argument, that's why it went silent because he completely leveled Marx to the ground, you know, because once you take all these factors <laughs> into mm-hmm. account, uh, what is the Marxist going to say? You know, it actually turned out that the capitalist is benefiting the worker instead of exploiting him. I have a question about everyone talking about cronyism and corporatism. And, and I am even seeing Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez talking about it with the whole Amazon New York thing and how New York pushed them out and, and all that kind of thing. Um, I like that they're talking about these things and the government picking winners and losers. But I think that's an important aspect to our economy and government oppression right now. How is it possible that progressives don't understand that these things are also socialist in nature and Instead of trying to stop picking winners and losers, they're instead wanting more government. Where's the disconnect there? Because the way they define capitalism is basically has just to do with rich people and poor people. Well, yeah, but the ownership of the goods. So they say they see someone like some rich owner of this business that gets actual handouts, you know, and subsidies and all kinds of you know benefits from the government itself. They see that as capitalism working. They see that as that, that's actually what capitalism is. And they don't recognize the fact that we libertarians are not only capitalists in that sense, but we're also advocates of the free market. We also advocate that the capitalists have to live and die on the basis of whether they produce goods that the market wants without the state coercion involved in the situation at all. And see, this is one of the answers to your earlier question about why people are suddenly interested in socialism, mm-hmm. because um, what's, you know, what's called interventionism, where the government kind of sticks his fingers in here and there sure. and, and, yeah. and it benefits, you know, benefits those that are well connected and all that kind of stuff. When they do that, it produces adverse effects for poor people. And, and, and when poor people see that rich people are, are, are taking advantage of, of the tax system, and, and, and there's a lot of nuances there too, but when they're actually getting subsidies, like take for instance the, the sugar industry, they're actually getting hundreds of millions of dollars from the taxpayers into their pocket um, to produce sugar, right? That would be an actual example of it. Well, that's an example of redistribution. That's not the free market. That does not benefit consumers. That doesn't benefit the poor person at all. So the effects of that are the poor person suffers and the rich person benefits. They see that as capitalism. We say, hey, that's part of the problem. That's part of why interventionism is bad. So why are people uh, interested in socialism? Because they see those things and they don't recognize that it's not 
a free market at all. They don't recognize that it's not true capitalism and work. The solutions themselves, they don't recognize as being the solutions. I gotcha. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we live in a paradigm of government interventionism and it's causing the very problems that Mises predicted it would cause. And part of the result of those problems is the fact that people are clamoring for socialism because they think that we have capitalism now, right? That's the problem. Yeah. But we really don't. But we really don't. Here's the thing, really quick before we wrap up this segment. We've been talking about this now for, I think, since the show blasted off here. No pun intended. But what is this influx of libertarian, okay, so-called, I'm going to put put this in quotes, libertarian leftist and their socialist uh, lib socks, libertarian socialist. What is up with this? And how is there any way that libertarianism and socialism, and what do you think of this idea of communalism? And is that compatible with the libertarian thought. So a communal libertarian. What do you what do you think of these ideas? Well, yeah, that's kind of a, a difficult issue. And, and part of the problem is, is that when it comes to being anti-state, there's a lot of different traditions of being anti-state, right? There, sure. are, there are people, I think Rothbard wrote about them. Um, they're called syndicalists, right? People who thought that they could uh, operate in a completely voluntary, community-oriented, where, where nothing was owned by individuals, but it was all owned by the community. But you actually didn't need a state to do that. Okay. And so those people, because they have anti-state tendencies, say, look, this is completely, we're going to call ourselves libertarians because we want to be free from the state. So it really depends on a variety of different things, including definition. But but me, an anarcho-capitalist, I'm like, look, if you and you know your 25 friends want to go out and start this community where everyone does that on a voluntary basis, go for it. You know, So we would right. allow things like that. Sure. I just don't think it can operate on a, on a bigger scale. I don't think it can, it can, I don't think it'll accomplish the same amount of productivity as a capitalist society where there's actually individuals taking on, um, the risks like that. Because, of course, we talked about this before. You can't have a large number of people agreeing on what should we, you know, invest in, right? The, the more people you add to that, the more difficult it is to actually do it. That's why if right. you want to produce for the masses, you have to have one guy or, or, you know, multiple people taking risks because the more people you have involved, um, the less you can agree on it. Right. So I right. think that, you know, people like, you know, people can create this, uh, little community that's completely ostracized from the normal society and they can do that. I just don't think it'll get very big or be as productive or produce the same types of luxurious goods that we have today. They would still be dependent on um, free markets in neighboring societies. They would still be dependent on markets. It would still be borders crossing or uh, goods crossing borders, but just that from commune to commune, because even one commune is only going to have so many natural resources and so many things to offer. And they would be looking to trade with outside communities. It's just a fact. Free markets are the only markets. Well, I think I think it's in their interest and they would find their interest that they could improve their standard of living by doing that. But even if they wanted to completely ostracize themselves from society as a whole and they only wanted to eat carrots for the rest of their life, they could do that if they wanted to. Sure. It's just a sucky lifestyle. But if, hey, but, you know, we'll let them do it if they want to. I just don't think that's kind of, a, I don't think that's a very, it's not very good for explaining to people our ideal if we're just going to say, look, you can live on a farm forever and, and just have this and, and that'll be our ideal utopia. That exactly. Even of, the Amish yeah. trade with non-Amish people. They still sell their goods to people outside of the community. Yeah, they still go to Walmart and they still go to Kmart. I lived in an Amish community when I was a kid and uh, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And again, you still see the horse and buggy parked over at Kmart. 
You know, it doesn't mean that they're going to, you know, everything they're going to buy is going to be made by hand. They're still going to interact with people and trade. And even if it's indirect exchange, they're still buying stuff. They're still buying a toaster. Maybe they are still buying that cell phone that the other people don't know about. <gasps> they are? Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Kibler says he just buys his donuts from the Amish and they buy their their things from the Amish. So I know that they're out there trading and working with other people. Yeah, they have cell phones. They do. They just have like one per town. Anyway, so (laughs) this is uh, Johnny Rocket. And this show is brought to you in part by Free Talk Live. It's a five time podcast award winner. You can listen to them via podcast, live streams, Twitch, satellite, and it's America's number one pro liberty radio program. They're live seven nights per week. They're pro liberty every issue, every time. And you can check them out at freetalklive.com. Again, that's freetalklive.com. Anyway, so this is Johnny Rocket with Raylene Lightheart, always launching ideas. We're talking to the Austro Libertarian himself, Mr. CJ Engel. And we'll be right back with Rocket Fires. So stick around and we'll be right back. Rock and roll. This is Chris Spangle, and I am the host of We Are Libertarians, which you can find in iTunes, Google Play, or at wearelibertarians.com. We are a podcast that brings you all of the irreverence that modern politics deserves by examining current events from a libertarian perspective. So please, check us out at wearelibertarians.com. show yeah yeah i'm learning i learned a bunch of good stuff today mr <laughs> mr cj angle now he's really good and cj thank you so much for being here man and it's really interesting topic i never thought i'd just do a show on why socialism sucks but i think you're the perfect guy for the job i agree I'm glad I picked you to do this with. And uh, what we do here in the second segment, it's called Rocket Fire, Rocket sir. What Fire. we do on Rocket Fire is I'm going to ask you a series of 10 questions. These questions will be politically related. And if you can answer these questions between 30 to 60 seconds, that'd be badass. Mr. Angle, are you ready to play Rocket Fire? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Question one. What is mutualism or market socialism? That's the idea that basically there's there's no there's no capitalists because they don't they don't direct the means of production uh the community does it themselves and they all decide by vote usually or by a board that represents them and they do it on behalf of everybody as if as if capitalism didn't already do that okay rock and roll man question two why don't socialists care about the past socialist failures it has been demonstrated by venezuela chile and even russia because they're utopians and they think that they can always do it better this time because they're smarter. Oh, yeah, because the last time it wasn't really democratic socialism. That was just socialism. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, they're, they're, they're better socialists now, apparently. And they're going to after this one fails, they're going to be even better next time. So that's good. <laughs> all right. Question three. Who would not want a society that guarantees prosperity for all but does not ask for equivalent contributory effort? Is this why the ideas of socialism are so successful? Yeah, I think the the politicians that can accumulate power by making up economic nonsense, I think that they are the biggest beneficiaries of it, and they leverage the uh, the ignorance of the masses in order to accumulate power. Right on. Question four. If socialists want to abolish private property and markets, then market prices as an information and incentive system no longer exist. What do you believe would come from this? I think it'd be, I mean, 
if if you built up a society from from the ground up on a socialist model, you would never get anywhere, and and, pe- and society would never go anywhere. But if you imposed it on a society that had the benefits of capitalism over centuries of time, you would completely devastate uh, the entire society. There'd be millions of deaths uh, from famine and starvation and et cetera. So it would immediately wipe out um, a third of our productivity and so forth. So it's an extremely dangerous scenario to, to put socialism on top of an already capitalist system like that. And it would, it would regress us back hundreds or perhaps even almost a thousand years. The terms communism morphed into socialism, socialism morphed into the left, the left morphed into the word liberal, and now they use the word democratic socialism. Why the change in the name while still advocating the same ideology? Because when one thing fails and you still want the power and you still want to uh, get a big follower base, you have to come up with new marketing language. Right on. Question six. Do Austrian economists really reject empirical evidence? (laughs) <laughs> they don't think that empirical evidence contributes to economic propositions. They don't think that economics itself as a formal theory can be derived from empirical observation. But empirical observation is still useful for, for doing history and commentating on past results of things like that. And it's just not it's just not economic propositions, it's historical propositions that empirical evidence provides. Right on, man. Question seven. Why do you think migrants come from these so-called blue states like New York, California, and Illinois, which just happen to be the highest taxed areas, are moving to more red states? Because when government wants to stick its hands in your pockets, it's the natural tendency of people to do what they can to get away from that. (laughs) Vote with their feet. Vote with their feet. Yeah, there you go. All right. Question eight. How is capitalism seen by the average person nowadays, and how could their perception be wrong? I think capitalism is is seen as this untamed force that need the government needs to oversee and make sure it doesn't harm anybody. It's it's got its. I think the average person thinks it's got its general benefits, mm-hmm. uh, but the government just needs to watch over it and make sure it's not taken advantage of. Right on. How is Alexandria Ocasio Cortez's Green New Deal completely absurd, and is it possible that it actually could come into fruition? I don't think it's possible yet. I think she's got years ahead of her to make sure to to build a base and, and, and get people on board with it because it is so radical and politicians don't like too much radicalism all at once. Uh-huh. But I think it's I think it's dangerous. It, it rests on the assumption that you can completely undermine the entire structure of how the world's population receives its energy and means of life and completely eradicate all of that and not suffer any consequences. In that sense, it's one of the most moronic suggestions in the last, <laughs> you know, 100 years. And it is. So. It is. All right. Question 10. Why would a guy like Karl Marx like the idea of a central bank? Because he, it, under his under his understanding of, of how, you know, the, the banking worked, he thought that uh, the activities of the bank needed to be uh, beneficial to all the people in general and that the only one who could be smart enough and moral enough to handle that was the, the person at the state. Right on. And the bonus question. You're ready for the bonus one. This one's a good one. This is going to be a tough one. Buckle up. Here we go. Why is war the ultimate fulfillment of the progressivist mindset and approach to the world? Because nothing is more encouraging to the people. Nothing gets the the masses on the same page and gets them endorsing the trillions of dollars in investment spent on one end that is destruction. Nothing is more powerful than war for getting the people all on board with 
with accumulating and um, pushing resources toward one end. It, it creates a psychological effect on the people. It creates an economic effect on the people, and it creates a political effect where everybody's on the same page and dissenters are considered anti-society. It's it's just such a powerful weapon for getting everybody to agree on the same thing via the state's propaganda. And you know, nothing says socialism like you know state-led propaganda and getting the people on board with you know act- economic activity. Anyways, oh, that's rocket fire. Give it up for CJ Angle. Great job, Andy. Anyways, those Johnny Rocket always launching ideas. We're gonna take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. Rock and roll. It's time to shake up your podcast feed, folks, by subscribing to Lions of Liberty, the only libertarian variety show out there. Spend Mondays with me, Mark Clare, as I feature in-depth interviews with great names in the libertarian community and fun roundtable discussions. Electric Liberty Land with me, Brian McWilliams, every Wednesday, your weekly dose of comedy, culture, and liberty. And Felony Fridays with me, John Odermatt, where I expose injustice in the broken criminal justice system. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and at lionsofliberty.com. Are you tired of banging your head against the proverbial wall of politics and getting nowhere toward actually making your life more free? Are you tired of interview podcasts that have the same guests as every other libertarian interview podcast out there? Are you tired of hearing the same news stories that you can hear on the mainstream media? then you need to listen to The Lava Flow, where we don't do politics and we don't do the major stories that exist only to divide you. We talk about news that affects you and your freedom, and we work to find solutions that can actually help you to be more free. Lava stands for Libertarian, Anarcho-Capitalist, Voluntarist, and Agorist. And if you consider yourself to be in any of those categories, all of those categories, or just interested in learning about them, then The Lava Flow Podcast is for you. Check us out at thelavaflow.com. The Lava Flow Podcast, channeling the flow of information to the libertarian, anarcho-capitalist, voluntarist, and agorist community. Thelavaflow.com. Oh my gosh, all these teeth I have. Hi, Johnny. Ray of Truth, Miss Rayleigh Lightheart. I don't know what the hell that was about. I love it. Uh, Ray of Truth. I love working with you. I don't know what I was going to say there. I'm over here grinning. All my teeth are showing now, though. You did a good job. Yeah. Way to go. go. You made it happen. Yeah, I did. I made it happen. Anyways, we're here. And we're with, here with CJ. Yeah, we're here with our Austro Libertarian himself, Mr. CJ Angle. Dude, thank you so much for being here. Great job on Rocket Fire and Raylene. Take her away. All right. So Andrew Yang, featured recently on Fox News, he's a 2020 Dem presidential candidate, is promoting the UBI, saying, in quotes, some confuse universal basic income with socialism. Socialism is when you nationalize the means of production. UBI is capitalism where income does not start at zero. Rather than spend tax income on bureaucracy, <laughs> it is I know, it is given directly to the people. End quote. Now, I have struggled with the concepts of UBI and even understanding what people are talking about. I, I mean, I, I've read it over and it's over and over. I, I know my econ pretty well. And it, because if everyone has $1,000, then doesn't that mean that really no one has $1,000? That $1,000 is worth pretty zero. much nothing? Yeah. Exactly. It's the new zero. So, 
Can you please explain this to our listeners exactly uh, anything you know about UBI, how it actually works? Am I wrong? And tell me about Andrew Yang. Is he wrong? Please. There's so many. I mean, this is this is obviously a trending idea, and there's so many different like um, strategies for getting the money to people. Right? That's the biggest thing. Is they? I mean, so on one hand, there's the people that are all about helping the poor, and so they think, hey, let's just give them some money, and that'll solve their problems. I thought then that in the, first grade too, but keep going. Yeah, right. Teach a yeah, man exactly. how to fish. Come on now. But then there's an other. There, there's a more academic version of it, which is basically that the way to grow an economy is to stimulate demand. And so the theory is that if we can give uh, you know millions of people more money to buy things with, that'll get the economy going, uh, growing, going Broken and growing. windows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically. So that's the, that's the more, um, you, you know, that that's for the accommodations that that think that they're trying to, you know, tinker with the economy and make it better. So that would be their, their justification of it. So there's different justifications for it. Um, but I think that, um, you know, at an economic level, I think one of the things they're trying to do, and this is this is interesting because a lot of people aren't paying ad- attention to this side of the UBI debate, but there's this, they're trying to, the central bankers, right? The, the, the federal reserve type people, they're trying to figure out how to, how do we get inflation up above 2% on our models? Right. And so one of the ways that they can do that is give money to the people so that they can spend it. And that would increase consumer prices and, the, and their CPI models would go up and they would accomplish their goal. Oh, yeah. so we could have wheelbarrows of-, of money while we're waiting for our bread. Right. I mean, yeah, that's that's kind of the end game of that kind of thing. But that's kind of what I think the academics are going for. But of course, they don't really market it like that. They basically market it as poor people need more money. Let's give them more money. Problem solved. But the thing I don't understand, CJ, is it's like this. It's like if everyone had a thousand dollars again, you would it would be first of all, be acquired through force. Somebody's paying for it right right? now. Somebody's giving up their money, which whether it be. The Fed or which the Fed would just, again, tax us, which is, you know, any kind of QE or quantitative easing is just a tax on the people. They print more money or they would take it from the businesses. So that's theft. And then they would give it to somebody else. But then at that same time, everything else would go up equivalent. The bottom would raise. The floor would raise. Yeah, exactly. So it's so there's there's so many. I mean, so they have it. They have these ideas of how how we're going to fund this thing. All right. So the one is to take from the rich and give it back to the poor. That takes um, potential productive investment and makes it into a consumption uh, effort. Right. So it takes. I mean, right. the way we get richer as a society is to invest in the capital structure. The, the reason why there's a global re- rising standard of living. The reason why we have things that. Uh, the rich people of a hundred years ago couldn't have even dreamed of is because we've had capital investment. So if you remove today's capital investment and give it to people to consume, you're literally stealing from potential wealth for future poor people. Okay. Yeah. So that's right. the first thing. The second thing is, well, let's not take it from the rich. Let's just uh, create the money out of thin air. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that's what you guys were saying about basically it just makes people's dollars uh, worth less and therefore they won't be able to buy anything. Um, but that also undermines the capital structure too because it makes prices over the long term rise. That's where bubbles come from and, and bubbles reserve, result in economic busts. And, and so there's that whole element too. And so you're really trying to accomplish ends that aren't possible via the government mechanism. Well, yeah, and they're not actually creating any value. I mean, so like you were saying that, yeah, you can give people money, but again, like we were saying, it could create a, a bubble 
and it, it could rise and temporarily. It is now. And it is now, of course. You know, like Raylene and I have been talking about a possible economic collapse happening very shortly. And I know Austrians have been talking about it for years, but I mean, look at the gas prices right now. They're the lowest they've ever been. And that's usually an indicator that, oh, well, that's, yeah. And, and that, that's why they're pushing for this kind of stuff, because in order to push those gas prices up, they say, hey, why don't we just give people more money? It'll make them feel like um, they can go spend more on gas, which pushes the gas prices up. So they're trying to they're trying to, um, you know, fake the U.S. economy out of a recession, basically. And, and, and that's that's part of what I was saying about the, the, the central bankers trying to to fix a pending recession. And one of the ways they do that is by creating more money and creating more demand. It kind of creates a band-aid situation where they can look at the numbers and say, hey, everything's all right, you know, and they don't have to actually consider what people are going through. Well, right. But the longer they falsely prop up the economy, right, the bigger the crash. And I I mean, I think this one that's going to happen is going to be worse than 2008. Oh, it, it will be. Well, yeah, but now you have the schools, you know, now you got the college debt. There's a bubble right now in school, in the schooling sector, in the college sector. So, I mean, it's going to be bad. And I, you know, I foresee it happening. I'm going to make this prediction from what I've read from and talked to you guys and, you know, been learning some stuff. I'd say next year. I was going to say within two years, I believe. I say next year, early next year, it's going to hit hard. I don't know. What's your prediction? I don't, I mean, it's one of those things where. If you're right, you could say, hey, look, man, I predicted this day. Remember? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the, the, the government. He doesn't want to the, be wrong, though. <laughs> if you're wrong, it's like, I don't, I don't remember doing that podcast. Yeah, I, I, drunk. I didn't do that. Yeah, <laughs> I, was forced, I was forced into it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, but I, I think that the, the, the central bank is the central bank has gotten very good. It has all these new tools that it didn't have in 2008. And its ability yes, to prop things up. So even if it looks like the economy is dipping into a recession, I think they have ways of playing the game a little bit longer and a little bit harder. And I think that they have ways of, of propping things up by increasing the money supply that they didn't have last time. And that's why they had to go to Congress and you had, you know, schmucks like Paul Ryan on his knees begging for bailouts. I don't, I think they have the power now to do things if they want to, uh, to prevent, you know, a, uh, you know, a recession by the numbers, you know, they can fake anything they want now. One of the reasons I think that they are going to do it sooner than later is because of Trump. They want to make sure that Trump is the one in which this great depression occurs under. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think it's a political thing, too. I, I do think that that's an element. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think it's a it's a very good prediction. I agree. Not that we're any of us are fans of Trump. We're just saying that the left that he will be the catalyst to bring in actual communism totality in government. I to uh, as a countermeasure, like look what he did. Now we have right. to fix it. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, exactly, and that's and that's part of the narrative too, because then they can say, look, look what capitalists have wrought. Look what they've brought us. Right, mm-hmm. the, this big capitalist president. Look what he did to us. Let's do socialism instead. I think that's I think that's a very um, beneficial narrative that they could push. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I'm saying mm-hmm. that if they do it, it would be the perfect time for them to do it. So, um, I believe that everyone that has read about this, all the libertarians out there. I just want to talk about socialism and communism. 40 to 70 million died. Uh, China under the chairman Mao, single party socialism. And that was in two years. 20 million killed in USSR under Stalin and the Great Purge. 40 million killed in the USSR under all the other leaders. 4 million killed Cambodia under Pol Pot. 1.6 million murdered. 4 million mur- killed in hard labor, North Korea under Kim Tu-sung. 1.15 million killed Yugoslavia under Josip. 1 million total killed Ethiopia under Menghistu, is that his name? In the Red Terror? 
One million killed, Indonesia under Suharto. One million killed from genocide. This does not include war casualties in Afghanistan under Brezhnev. 800,000 killed in Rwanda. We are literally talking about death here, and it is no joke, and we should be looking at that. And now we also have to say, where is the social aspect, and what is going to change if we embrace socialism and communism? One thing that's important to me is, uh, and I don't really abide by a, an organized religion, but I'm a spiritual person. And I, Marx called religion the opium of the people. All communist governments have persecuted religious people. Um, we're talking about deaths here, and we all know that what the Nazis did. Is it safe to predict that our freedom to worship anything other than the state will be infringed if we continue to embrace socialism politically now? That depends entirely on the extent to which the religion sees the state as a savior, you know, to, to use an analogy you know, mm-hmm. from religion, because yes, I think I that one of the reasons that the, you know, past authoritarian socialist regimes were so hard on religion is because religion was something that people looked to as uh, something non-political, something that they right. could look forward to outside of the state. And of course the mm-hmm. state, if you consider it a God, right, maybe it's its own religion and Gods are jealous gods. They don't like other gods, you know, getting in the way of their own uh, domain, right? And so when you have the state that recognizes that certain religions, you know, taught that the state was not God, well, that's a threat on its own power. And so Mm -hmm. so if there there are, um, you know, groups of religions, you know, in the West that are still, and a lot of them have been taken over by statists. You know, so many religions are just flooded with people that, that worship the state, basically. But to the extent that there's a religion that sees in the state a threat to, you know, the true God, whoever they interpret as the true God, you know, in Christianity or whatever, um, I think to that extent, the state will clamp down against them. And it's, I think it's kind of inevitable because the, restate, the state relies on people seeing um, its own deity, you know, and, and, and right. if people deny that, yeah. then it's not the state's going to lose its power. So I think that's very possible. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm an anarchist and that is my, that is very spiritual for me. I believe in that. I believe that we are we own ourselves, and and this is free will. Is that's so important? Do you believe that libertarians or anarchists will be the persecuted, or do you think it will be a different um, anti-state situation? Well, yeah. If you look at you know the the very people that are you know, getting completely skewered in the media today. Um, you know, some of them are Christians, but it's basically the people that are the loudest against, you know, whatever is the chosen narrative of the day. So especially in Europe, you know, you have a certain protect, protected classes, certain mm-hmm. minorities that have been especially chosen by the state for its propaganda efforts. And whoever opposes them, they're not necessarily Christians. They're not necessarily, oh, yeah, you know, sure. uh, uh, Jews or whatever. You know, they're yeah. not, they're not, they don't belong to a specific religion, but you could say that their religion, so-called, their worldview is anti-state or at least anti-the narrative. And so whoever opposes that is going to get skewered, whether you're a Christian or, or whatever you are, you know, right? or a Muslim. Even, I mean, even, I mean, think about, think about what's going on in the Middle East and just mm-hmm. the idea that we're equating, um, you know, Islam itself, you know, Islam as a belief system, independent of whether the people actually are violent or not. And, and there's debates over whether Islam is, is inherently a, a violent Peaceful religion, religion but, or yeah. Yeah. But, but independent of that, mm-hmm. but the fact of the matter is there are people who consider themselves Muslim that are violent and there are people who consider themselves Muslim that are peaceful. That's right. just, just like any other religion. 
Right. Anyone. The fact is that it's part of the propaganda to declare the entire religion as a terrorist religion. Yes. Well, that's propaganda. That 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 gets the people ginned up for war and ginned up for interventionism. And so, if you oppose that mentality, you are you know a you know aid and a better of terrorism or whatever. You know. So I think it's it's more of a. It doesn't matter your religion. What matters is whether or not you're subservient to the state. I think that's what they care about. I agree. All right, Raylene, prepare for landing. Oh, my goodness. Well, roger that, Johnny. <laughs> Seatbelt and shoulder harnesses. Your body, your choice. Landing gear and downward expanders. NAP initiated. Anti-state superchargers. Defragged and woke. Landing lights and guest website. CJ, give us your .com, sir. AustroLibertarian.com is the best place to find me. AustroLibertarian.com. <laughs> and it's a great website. It, you just revamped it, I think, as of recently. I did. I had a consulting business that I was involved in for the last, uh, I guess, seven years now. And I basically set that aside for now to focus on liberty things, including this site, but also stuff with the Mises Institute and so on. So trying to get my hands dirty again. Oh, dude, your website looks beautiful. I love your blogs. Uh, I see you relaunched your podcast. Please uh, tell us about your podcast and where can people find you on that too? Because I think your new podcast is great. Yeah, so I just started. I haven't really pushed it out yet because I want to get, I'm, you know, I'm kind of a Dipping my toe in the water. You and, have like and, five and, episodes. But, You're doing good though. Yeah, and and I'm and I've got I've got some plans for it, but right now I'm just trying to get a couple things up. But in any case, AustroLibertarian.com/slash/podcast has all the subscription links, um, SoundCloud, YouTube, etc. So that's kind of a uh, just getting started situation, but I've got some pretty good plans and guests lined up for making the next couple months a big uh, big jump on that. Yeah, well, it's good. You had Peter Klein on there already, and I, he's he's been on the show or the old show, but Peter's a great guy and he. He's a, he was a great guest to have. And again, you're one of my favorites. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's, he's an awesome guy. Uh, Really nice, too. And, uh, you know, I love your website. The blogs are great. Your articles are great. And the look and feel of the site is great. And and you also have a subscription program. So people can sign up for like 50 bucks a year or something like that to get the print and digital version. Yeah. So actually, this is a project that I've been thinking about for a long time. And I finally have, you know, because I I moved on from real world work, so to speak. And I (laughs) I put all my efforts into this and I've got contributors and editors and designers and we're basically creating a print publication and we're really excited about it. We've had, we did like a little inaugural practice issue, but, um, I was surprised. I have about 300 people signed up so far, which is actually a big number in one month. You know, uh, that many yeah, people that's great. jumping onto it is, uh, way bigger than I thought it would be. But fa- it's fascinating because like 75% of the people opted for the print version, which you think in the world of, in, in the age of digital, people would be less, you know, less interested in yeah. the print. But I think, I think people are, are sick and tired of social media in some senses. So they want their podcast. They want their articles sometimes, but sometimes they just want to tune out and read something. And I think that's what we're, we're going for. So, uh, we're actually preparing a spring issue on war. So I'm really excited at that, but australibertarian.com slash magazine and there's digital only and print options available and you can have anyone look at that awesome man and seriously on that note i just think that most libertarians like real books they feel better about themselves when they have like a library of like <laughs> yeah, Mises so. institute books real libertarians real we, did libertari- it. we named it right now <laughs> not fake yeah. libertarians but real libertarians <laughs> like having that anagalus you know the analog books right there 
in front of them, like, look how smart I am, yes. Anyways, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anyways, Johnny Rocket, always launching ideas. Thank you guys so much, and we'll see you next week. And by the way, Raylene, what should they do really quick before we go? What should we do? Yeah, what should they do? Oh, well, I think that <laughs> I can tell you right now. No, I think should. you should go. I think you should go to supportblastoff.com. dot com. Supportblastoff.com, guys, and you can just give a dollar to to hear the the next show, which is the after party with CJ Engel, and we'll be able to put him on blast and talk to him all about um, socialism in the news right now. Okay, awesome. So don't miss it. Rock and roll. See you next week. <laughs> bye bye.